0: Hi, this is Amy Proall with the PolyBio Podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Rudy Tanzi. He's the Kennedy Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Genetics and Aging Research Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he also serves as Vice Chair of Neurology and Co-Director of the McCain Center for Brain Health at Massachusetts General Hospital. Much of his career has focused on the genetics of Alzheimer's disease But more recently, his lab has moved into the study of how infectious and innate immune signaling may also contribute to the Alzheimer's disease process. In fact, his lab has made a key discovery, which is that the amyloid plaque in the Alzheimer's brain may actually be an antimicrobial peptide that forms in response to pathogens in brain tissue. And with that, welcome, Rudy, thank you for joining.
1: Pleasure to be here, Amy, thank you.
0: Great, well, Rudy, tell me a bit about What you've been working on, I learned about your work with a start in Alzheimer's disease. And at that point, what really struck me about your work that I mentioned was research you've done that suggests that the amyloid plaque in the Alzheimer's brain may have a function. It may act as an antimicrobial peptide. Can you tell me more about that work?
1: Yeah, so more specifically the the amyloid beta protein, which is the key component of the plaque and the cores of the amyloid plaques that Initiate Alzheimer's disease is an antimicrobial peptide. So, the, um, this, you know, going back to 19, you know, in the late 80s when I was a student at Harvard for my doctoral thesis, I discovered the gene that makes the amyloid beta protein and named it amyloid precursor protein, APP. And then that became the first Alzheimer's gene. And so I've been studying that gene, you know, ever since and a bunch of other genes and studying the amyloid. And then um, when I started my lab, um, one of the first people I, I hired was Rob Moyer from Australia. And cause he was already working on the biochemistry of the amyloid beta protein and on the precursor protein APP that we had found. Um, so Rob worked for a long time on different aspects of amyloid beta amyloid and Alzheimer's and every discovery he made at the time was unusual out of the box off you know and um people didn't get it and if you look at through his discoveries I mean you know he was the first guy who discovered there are naturally occurring antibodies against amyloid that we make that protect us against Alzheimer's and that's what inspired Biogen's uh immunotherapy home, I mean directly inspired it the people who made it in Switzerland neuroimmune and licensed it to Biogen, You know, cited the paper that Rob and I published that said that. And then Rob was the first one to say that the risk factor, APOE, that is the greatest genetic risk factor, APOE-4 for Alzheimer's. Everybody said APOE, is, it causes Alzheimer's because it, it, it controls how amyloid is cleared out of the brain. And Rob said, I don't know how to be 20 years ago, no, APOE, Makes the amyloid form. It it binds to the amyloid beta protein, and the APOE4 makes more amyloid form than the more benign forms, E3 and E2. And now, here it is 20 years later, and everyone's going to that. It looks like he was right about that as well. So, the other thing they did that you're talking about was you know, one day I had just found a new Alzheimer's gene. It was a Friday evening, and it's uh, on Friday evenings, we have what we have to call attitude adjustment hour because we're not allowed to call it bear hour anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, and I, I was in my office after we left the people in the lunchroom and I had a bear and Rob had one in the office next door. And I come across this new Alzheimer's gene called CD33. And it turns out now that's the first of many new Alzheimer's genes that brings us to microglia and innate immunity. And I was looking up this, this gene and I'm like, innate immunity in in the brain and microglia. So I went next door to Rob and I said, Rob, what do you know about innate immunity in the brain? And Rob said, dude, dude, come here, look at the screen. And he goes, amyloid beta protein is innate immunity. And I'm like, what? He goes, it's made to protect the brain. It's not just junk. Check this out. And he had this Excel sheet, like, I don't know how to be a hundred rows long, comparing amyloid beta protein that makes up the plaque to a known protective peptide in the body called LL37. is one of the known antimicrobial peptides, probably the most known. And he showed, and he had all the similarities between them. And he said, we have to test this. So we had a grad student with us, Stephanie Sosha, um, who's now at Moderna. She was at Biogen for a while after she left us. And um, we said, okay, Stephanie, we have an idea. <laughs> so we're gonna give you all these clinical infectious pathogens, be careful. And you're going to add amyloid beta protein to them and see if it kills them, because we think it might be a a host defense peptide, an antimicrobial peptide. And we explained to her, your first defense in the body against any infection is not antibodies or T cells or B cells, or even macrophages or, or inflammation. These little sticky peptides bind to the virus or bacteria or fungus and just glob it up into a ball called an extracellular trap. And so the idea was maybe amyloid beta protein is doing this, and that's how you form you can form plaques that way. Anyway, fast forward, it was correct. Uh, we published the first paper, 2010, and the New York Times did a big article about it, but they kind of went toward infection. And we weren't saying infection causes Alzheimer's. We were saying that amyloid beta protein may be in the brain to protect against infection. We hadn't shown infection causes the disease. And I remember Paul Greengard, the late, Paul Greengaard, who's a mentor of mine, Nobel Laureate for neuroscience. He called me and he, and he read the New York Times. And he said, Rudy, what are you doing? He's you, saying infection causes Alzheimer's. And I'm like, well, we're not saying that yet. We're just saying that amyloid beta protein may have evolved to protect the brain against infection. And that's how this all started. And then we just kept publishing more and more papers. Will Eimer in our group, Deepak Kumar, Nanda Kumar, all were in Rob's lab. And then when Rob tragically passed away, Uh, two years ago, after a very short battle with a glioblastoma, and I lost my best friend and my closest colleague and um, still haven't gotten over it. Um, I took over Rob's lab into my lab in the unit, and we're still continuing this work, and it's getting stronger and stronger every year. Well, every month, really.
0: Yes. Wow, that was a very good summary of how that ended up happening, Rudy. I mean, and as you know, I took great interest in the findings from, I think, when I originally saw that first paper you published, which showed that amyloid might have a protective role against the herpes viruses. I think those, that was one of the first uh, type of viruses yeah. that you had done that experiment yeah. on, exactly. And as you well know, I contacted you and Rob and yeah. I actually yeah. ended up also knowing Rob, who was incredible. And that was a, a wonderful way to get more knowledge about this work.
1: Now yeah, that paper was in 2018 mm-hmm. in Neuron, where Lymo was the first author. But believe it oh, yeah. or not, the very first paper that showed yeah. that A beta is an antimicrobial peptide was back in 2010, and it took it took that long for Rob and I to generate enough data where no one would say we were crazy. Because if you're going to gen, if you're going to publish something crazy, you have to have enough data that they can't call you crazy. So that took like six years to get the first paper out where we showed A beta could protect against bacteria against Salmonella, and then the follow up was to show it protects against Um, herpes virus. And now we have a much bigger, I can tell you about a much broader antimicrobial protection hypothesis, where we're arguing that all of Alzheimer's pathology, plaques, the tangles, and the neuroinflammation is an orchestrated innate immune response that evolved, this pathology evolved to protect the brain. And They all drive each other. Plaques drive the tangles that choke the nerve cells from inside, the tau tangles, the tangles spread. The amyloid and the tangles cause the microglia to get activated. The microglia cells activate the astrocytes. Now you have neuroinflammation. All of this evolved to protect the brain against infection. And the big question today is, is is infection still causing the disease or is it mainly genetics? Because what happened was as this pathology was protective during big bouts and epidemics of of viral encephalitis or meningitis over the last, whatever, 100,000 years, if you had gene mutations or variants to happen to make you able to make amyloid more readily, or you're able to make the tangles more readily, or you're more prone to get inflammation in the brain, you lived. And so that put what we call selective pressure on all these different, now we have 94 genes, I don't know how many mutations, thousands, and that put pressure so that those mutations were conserved because if you had them, you survived. And so simple Darwinian genetics. So today we carry with us all these mutations and gene variants that predispose to this pathology and thus to Alzheimer's disease risk. But we argue that even though they're the major cause of Alzheimer's today, they may be with us as evolutionary baggage because originally they protected people by promoting that pathology when there were big bouts of infection going around in the in the population.
0: That is a very new stuff. No, Rudy, awesome. that's really interesting. I love how you are always looking at this topic through the lens of evolution. You even did that with the. Uh, Alzheimer with the amyloid plaque itself where exactly you and Rob would talk about the fact that that even zebrafish produce amyloid. So it would seem very odd that that this conserved protein would be that we would continue, you know, humans would continue to be able to produce amyloid derived all the way from a zebrafish type lineage if it didn't have some sort of function, if it wasn't doing something. Um, And that was one of the first evolutionary um, arguments that you've made. But the second one makes a huge amount of sense to me because to summarize what I think you're saying, you're saying that back in the day, humans usually didn't live that long and were definitely got, exposed to often severe infections, possibly something mm-hmm. like the bubonic plague. I'm not sure some really bad bi- pathogen. Bit, Viral
1: yeah. infections and in that exactly. mostly in the Savannah in Africa. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And then if you had a very robust and almost very pro-inflammatory response to that infection, you would start that circuit of, uh, that involves amyloid formation, but also glial act, microglial activation, neuroinflammation, which at that point you want this strong immune response to counter that pathogen infection.
1: Yeah. Right. I, I'm saying, what I'm saying though, is that you don't have to have the inflammation to get the amyloid.
0: Yeah.
1: You will, you will have a beta. This is Rob's thing, right? Yeah. Because the amyloid beta protein is already floating around in certain concentrations in your brain.
0: Okay.
1: And then, when, and it, and then the brain flushes it out and then makes more all the time. And then when a microbe comes around, like a virus or a bacteria, the sticky amyloid beta protein sticks to it and then starts to bring other ones in. And now you form this like glob around the, the, the microbe. And then the, then fibrils form. And next thing you know, you have a plaque. And we showed in a proof of concept experiment that with microbes in a brain or in a Alzheimer's brain in a dish, as we invented, that you can get a plaque overnight. A plaque that would normally take months in a mouse or a plaque that would take weeks in the dish you could get in 24 hours by just adding a microbe, it instantly seeded, or as you say, nucleated the plaque to form within 24 to 48 hours. So yes. that was the proof of concept. So you, when the microbe goes in, you'll get the amyloid right away. The same microbe is gonna tell the microglial cells to become inflammatory, right? The newest thing that you, haven't, you may not have seen yet, is, and I presented this at Spain at the ADPD meeting a month or so ago, is that, the virus, a herpes virus, or any virus, when it interacts with an, a neuron, will cause the neuron to make a tangle. The tangle is the tau protein falling off of microtubules on a cytoskeleton and then forming a, this uh, twisted filament that blocks passageway down the process, down the axon of the neuron. <laughs> Amyloid We also know amyloid can induce tangles. So think about it. Picture this. The virus is in the brain. A beta tries to trap it and form a plaque, but some of it gets away. Now the virus uh, is going to hit microglial cells, and they're going to try to kill it. The virus is going to go to the neuron. The neuron makes a tangle. Why? Because the way these viruses spread is they go down the axon of the neuron to the synapse and then jump the synapse to the next neuron. That's called neurotropic spread. So if you have a tangle, it's a block So the virus causes a tangle and we, we and Will Imrich did this work, it's beautiful, we're mm-hmm. writing it up now, some published. And then just in case the virus doesn't cause enough tangle, the A-beta amyloid that the, that the, that the, that the uh, virus caused will also interact with the neuron and cause a tangle. And in case that's not good enough, the tangle gets spit out by the neuron and goes to another neuron nearby and causes tangles to to create more roadblocks. Wow. Okay, and and if that's not good enough, the microglial cells come in and cause more tangles to form as well. So all of these pathologies all promote each other. It's all this redundancy because it was so important, we believe, to have this pathology to protect the brain because the brain doesn't have antibodies, doesn't have T cells, B cells, it doesn't have an adaptive immune system. It's, it's a very primitive organ when it comes to immunity. So it needs these other mechanisms to protect itself.
0: Got it. So you have an infection that could get into the brain, like a herpes virus infection, and then there's going to be a number of different redundant parts of the innate immune system that recognize it and activate as part of that. But first of all, the pathogen is going to get away a little bit in the way of that signaling. For example, what you showed with the ability to sort of cause a tangle in the in the tau Mm. signaling but and then also if the immune system in the brain is continues this continues to happen over time in someone in modern times and you're saying this might actually become more pathological than helpful even though an immune response to the pathogen is generally a good thing if a person lives to be older and they get repeated infection and perhaps more uh pathogen gets into the brain over time via aging, you're gonna have an exacerbation of what sometimes could have been a normal inflammatory response that could be more problematic for Alzheimer's in 2022.
1: Yeah, so like think about when lifespan, like you were saying earlier, let's say tens of thousands of years ago, lifespan was for the first for the humans was 25 years old on average. Um, if you're running around the Savannah, you're 18 years old, peak of your life, you've already probably have five kids, um, and, and now all of a sudden neurons start dying, nerve cells start dying in your brain. Um, you don't have Alzheimer's, you're 18, right? The, you, you probably got a bad mosquito bite. And so what happens is it, it, now this is going around, these mosquitoes are everywhere. Let's see, there's this big you know, epidemic. And there's certain people in the population who have gene mutations by chance where they're more likely to make amyloid or they're more likely to make a tangle, or they're more likely to get their microglial cells activated into neuroinflammation. They live (laughs) because their brain survived. So they go on to reproduce. And so that's selective pressure. So I think today, the big question is, are infections still, we can get into the evidence for this, are infections still causing Alzheimer's disease or some part of it, or is it now all the genetic baggage that we pulled with us over the last tens of thousands of years because these these gene mutations protected us back when we back when uh, infections of in the brain were more rampant.
0: Wow. Interesting. Wouldn't it just be a combination? Wouldn't the genetics set the stage for what the infection then exacerbates? A combination of you can, both.
1: You, you, can, you, can, you can imagine a scenario like that easily. Then you gotta scientifically you have to test it, right? Mm. So you, you go in and as a scientist you know this, you have to go in and test a hypothesis and so the first thing we did was took you know over 100 about 100 150 brains postmortem brains people who died with alzheimers older people who didn't have alzheimers when they died age matched and then younger people who may have died in accidents or catastrophic death and we looked for inf- Infection. We looked for microbes in the brain. We used what's called metagenomic sequencing, and bottom line is we found lots of stuff. Lots of interesting findings came out of that. One cool thing was that young brains actually have the beneficial bacteria of the gut microbiome in their brains. Then in older brains, you don't see it anymore. So we discovered all this crazy stuff. But what we didn't discover was a smoking gun. We couldn't find a single. Infectious particle, virus, bacteria, fungus, or otherwise, that was more abundant in the Alzheimer's disease brain versus the control brains, including herpes virus, which went against a publication from Mount Sinai. And we, but we were much more stringent in how we did our analysis, which you know may explain the difference. So, but we do see lot. We did see lots of, of different microbes. So how? So. Do we then say, oh, then if then infection doesn't cause the disease because we didn't find something more abundant? And you know, um, actually, I should say we did find three pretty arcane periodontal bacteria uh, that were more abundant in AD brain, not P. gingivalis, which is what most people think about when they think about periodontal bacteria and, and Alzheimer's. These were like very arcane ones, with, with names that sounded like Italian pasta, <laughs> like like Prevotella and Gamella, and we? You know, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, those were slightly; those were significantly, but, but marginally increased in AD brain. So we're looking at those. But here's the thing: do we give up and say, "Okay, infection doesn't do it"? No. Think about this: I right? how when the amyloid first forms in the Alzheimer brain, that's 30 years before symptoms. 30 years and the amyloid causes the tangles so i like to say the amyloid's the match the tangles are like brush fires that spread and it and it takes 30 years of those brush fires igniting forest fires of neuroinflammation until you get enough cell death mainly from the neuroinflammation to get the symptoms so think about a football player who took lots of bangs to the head bangs to the head cause tangles directly. You don't need amyloid. So Alzheimer's is an amyloid-induced tangle disease that finally leads to neuroinflammation over decades and then dementia. Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is what plagues like, uh, uh, athletes like football players or boxers, boxers who get too many bangs at the head, that's a headbang-induced tangle disease that takes decades of spreading and neuroinflammation. So if you think about how long it takes You know, you got a a football player who's playing football in their teens, 20s, maybe 30s, if you're Tom Brady, your 40s, right? But it takes decades before some unfortunate ones might get CTE because it takes that long for these tangles and brush fires to spread caused by the headbangs before you get enough neuroinflammation that causes the big cell death. And in the case of Alzheimer's, just just substitute headbangs with amyloid. Okay, so if amyloids, the match, the tangos the brush fires, the virus fires, the neuroinflammation, now we understand why when people do trials to hit amyloid in full-blown Alzheimer patients, it doesn't work, it doesn't make them better because they have a head full of neuroinflammation killing the nerve cells. And you're saying, I know, I'll blow up the match or I'll stomp out the brush fire, Um, you know, so you have, to, you have to protect the neurons from dying. You have to stop the neuroinflammation. I started a company with two kids from Brown University called Amelix that made a neuroprotective drug combination that is now being tried in Alzheimer's and it worked in ALS and now we're awaiting the FDA decision on approval for that. Um, so, so if you go through this scenario, you say, well, what's striking the match? Why did the amyloid form? And you can say genetics, you can say APOE4 leads to more amyloid and the early onset Alzheimer's genes like we found, but what if it's a microbe? What if an infection that you had at a younger age um, that that got into the brain, maybe COVID right now, right? Could it be that a virus that got into the brain when you were 20 years old, triggered those first plaques and tangles in that antimicrobial protection yes. hypothesis. And now it took just like the head bangs, it took decades of spreading. So finally when the person gets Alzheimer's later on at, let's say 70 years old, now you say, okay, I'm going to go in there and find the microbe. Well, that's like going to the football play with CTE and saying, we're going to find who your head. That <laughs> happened 30 years ago. So how do you get around that? Well, Remember what happens if the amyloid beta protein is binding those microbes and trapping them in a plaque, which we know COVID can also do. The plaque could be laser captured. Use lasers to capture each plaque, pull it out of the brain, and then you dissolve the plaque, which is really tough actually, and then look for evidence of microbial, viral, or bacterial DNA and RNA inside the plaque where it might still be encased, kind of like archaeology. Like fossil Mm -hmm. finding. The second way we can do this, now we're doing that. The second way you can do it is you can look at memory B cells, the B cells to keep track of all the infections you had, because presumably it hit the the body as well. And you can look to see if there's a common memory B cell pattern among Alzheimer's patients. So we're not giving up on the infections. We just don't have the smoking gun yet.
0: Got it. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that you need a smoking gun because when you talk about amyloid being an antimicrobial peptide, and I agree with you, not that many people I talk to are really familiar with the antimicrobial peptides. They're T-cell people or they're B-cell people or they're macrophage people, but the antimicrobial peptides were actually part of my PhD work in catholicidin being one of the primary ones. And what I understood about that early on with catholicidin, the LL37 antimicrobial peptide that Rob Moyer, your colleague originally saw had a lot of overlap in in molecular characteristics with amyloid was is that it's it's spliced differently depending on the nature of an infectious threat right but it it, it's it's it will respond to any kind of infectious threat it's such a basic part of the innate immune response that it could be a certain bacterial pathogen a viral pathogen a fungal pathogen it could be a group of organisms it could be a couple different oral bacterial organisms that together collectively um, end up signaling in a way that could be problematic, right? So that suggests that there doesn't have to be the Alzheimer's pathogen for infection to matter in the disease. One person could have had a fungal issue. One person could have had a viral issue. One person could have had in simple terms a brain type microbiome. What I mean by that is collective organism type issue that would also, and all of this, what could have led to an amyloid response as long as it's an antimicrobial peptide. And beyond that, I've seen studies, like you said, I think there was one that showed that amyloid was actually very high in the brains of children or people who had grew up in Mexico City. There was a lot of ozone. I paid attention to that because I grew up in Mexico City and it was not exciting to read. But if you think about that, a pollutant or a chemical can also activate the innate immune response and antimicrobial peptides. So when you're talking about- It acts like like a seed,
1: right? Exactly. Air pollution particle can also seed the amyloid just like a microbe can.
0: Right. So that's the beauty of your work to me is someone could have had an air pollution exposure and a head injury, and that can activate the innate immune system. And someone else could have had an infection, and that could have been a bigger player in what you're talking about to activate amyloid as an antimicrobial peptide. And that means that Alzheimer's may develop differently in different people with the the factors that stimulate the innate immune system or the amyloid production. And what you've done is characterize those common concrete signaling processes that become activated no matter what the exposures are that feed into a particular case.
1: Yeah, are you, in all these cases you just mentioned, and I totally agree with you. You're talking about ways to, we say, nucleate or seed amyloid. Mm-hmm. So I think about think about like rain, think about when they seed clouds to make rain. You got all this water vapor, but it's not coalescing. Yeah. So they put in, I don't know, they use particles to coalesce the water vapor and now they make rain. Okay same thing in the brain. You might have these amyloid peptides kind of diffuse and all floating around and some are going to get cleared out of the brain or, you know, there's all different ways to get rid of the A-beta after you make it in the brain. You can break it down enzymatically, like real cells can eat it. It can be transported out of the brain into the blood, be dissolved in the kidney. Um, but the thing is, when you have a microbe or you have a, a pollutant or you have, according to Rob's paper, that's now coming back into vogue, That don't believe back then, ApoE4. Mm-hmm. ApoE4, the most common risk factor in Alzheimer's in 50 to 60% of, of patients. E4, it can act as a seed. So all these cases, so you, there's different ways to make the amyloid based on its role as an antimicrobial peptide. Infection, as you say, is one of them. And it could be multi, any, any, any different types of microbes that do it, plus pollution, plus genetics. So the question is, what is the relative contribution today of an infection to drive the initial amyloid versus genetics versus air pollution? And we don't know yet, but you don't say just because Alzheimer's can be caused genetically, infection can't, or, exactly. or pollution can't. Um, over time, we have to just figure this all out. It's gonna be a combination of, of all, all of these things, genetics, infection, and anything else can just seed goes diffuse say beta peptides into a ball to form the first amyloid that causes the tangles, that, that spread for decades, that trigger neuroinflammation, until neuroinflammation, the big killer, destroys enough synapses and neurons to start getting cognitive impairment and dementia. That's the disease. Yeah.
0: Yes, it's pretty cool to basically hear you explain Alzheimer's disease, give or take the nuances of the environmental factors that may differ among cases. And obviously there needs to be further research on that topic, but yeah, again, to emphasize, I could see a a case of Alzheimer's that develops just because someone has a a APOE mutation that's really detrimental. That might be enough for amyloid and the inflammatory processes you're describing to to become dominant. Someone else might have an infection and a head injury and they might go in the same direction, right? So that's where I think I see, again, such potential in your work is it doesn't have to be a Cox postulates. I don't know if you, Robert Cox was a microbiologist back in the day where he, he came up with these rules that one pathogen should cause one disease. And I think that really they provided some clarity at the time, but I think it was a problem for chronic disease research where it's clearly not that clear cut. And we just need to think about the fact that each person may have different environmental factors that feed in, you know, based on their genetics feed into their case. And that we're looking at diseases that are not exactly the same in each person that have common signaling elements going on with them. And that also opens up an era of personalized medicine with these patients where we don't have to say there's going to be the one jug or the one it's a viral or the one genetic treatment. There may actually be ways to treat patients with different medications or different um, cocktails of treatments, depending on the factors that played a role in their particular case. That's where I I see this going, which is interesting.
1: And the fact is, so take take APOE4, Mm -hmm. it's in 20% of the population. One copy of E4 from one parent increases risk fourfold for AD two copies increases risk 14-fold. But it doesn't guarantee the disease. But if you look at the age of onset for people who carry one or two copies of E4, it's all over the place. So you have to ask, okay, what else is mitigating or exacerbating risk when you carry ApoE4? A lot of people know they carry E4 today from 23andMe. And they want to know, like, I want to know, like, what's my risk? Well, it depends on other genetic factors, but it also depends on how you're living your life. Because... You know, maybe certain infections might come in um, and drive the process faster, or you live in a polluted area like Mexico City. But it also could be, you know, I use the acronym SHIELDS for how to take care of your brain. Sleep. Okay, you're not getting enough sleep, so amyloid builds up in your brain more. H, handle stress. Okay, your, your default mode network that, that creates your ego is on overdrive. And, now, and that's where amyloid is made. And you're making too much amyloid every day uh, because you're not mindful enough or not meditating enough. And I'm not saying everybody has Alzheimer's is not mindful. <laughs> I'm just saying that's one way to get there. Um, you know, I is staying interactive with others. E, exercise. You're not exercising enough. Exercise clears amyloid away. Uh, it stops inflammation. L, learn new things. Right now, you're learning new things. I'm learning new things. That makes new synapses. The more synapses you have, it's like money in the bank. The more you can lose before you lose it. And then D, diet, your, your gut microbiome, happy with plant-based diet, the gut microbiome directly keeps amyloid down and inflammation in the brain down. So, so somebody is not shielding, right? right. They're going to be more prone to an earlier onset with APOV4 as well. But I think we have to ask, if you look at the work of Tuck Finch, Caleb Finch, we call him Tuck Finch, the USC, who's a colleague of mine, he has shown over and over again in various tribal populations, if you carry ApoE4, you're less you there's less mortality in tribes with children. And the reason is if the kids who carry E4 don't get infections as much as the kids who don't. Well, we talked about this just last week out at a meeting at USC. And I said, well, what do they, if these kids are protective by E4 um, in these tribes around, I forgot what these tribes were, but he studies these, these tribal people. And I said, what, 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 what kills the kids who don't have E4? And he goes, oh, it's all infection. I'm like, well, there you go. E4 is gonna drive amyloid faster. And so they're gonna be protected from infection in their brain faster than, than others. And this, this, it could just be that simple. So it is the interplay of all these things.
0: Absolutely. And it, it really, again, goes back to the interesting difference of how we evolved to deal with the environment, not even that a lot, hundreds of years ago when lifespans were shorter and perhaps a really uh, robust response to an infection and a lot of amyloid production was good in the short term versus now people living decades longer and having many more mm-hmm. of the exposures we're talking about, whether it's exposures to pollutants or accidents or infections happen over the course of a lifetime. And okay. does that change then the way we're set up to become more problematic than helpful. I, I really think that's a cool, yeah. cool way that you're starting to look at this. Yeah. yeah.
1: Rob, Rob and I used to love the term antagonistic pleiotrophy, which is exactly what you're explaining. Antagonistic pleiotrophy is where what's good for you early on that makes sure you reproduce and create more humans is bad for you later on and takes you out. And there was this, there was this, I don't like this hypothesis, but there was this hypothesis in the aging field called the disposable soma hypothesis It says the most successful species would be those that where you reproduce fast and early and, and then you get out of the way. Now that's out of favor because now we know there's a great role for grandparents and older folks who impart wisdom on the young Turks, right? So that hypothesis isn't in, in favor anymore, but it but used to be that be thought that what made you healthy earlier on and took you out was favoring survival but i would say it doesn't favor thrival right mm-hmm. then maybe you just might have people who live and die fast and the species goes but they're not necessarily thriving or creating new amazing things on earth like going to the moon right. so that's where grandparents and and older people come in um so there's a lot on that on the whole grandparenting and yeah. apoe is a big part of this grandparenting hypothesis. But again, Tuck Finch has written about this if you're interested. It's really cool stuff.
0: It is interesting. I've always thought about that a little bit with pregnancy, where there's a lot of immunosuppression and immunosuppressive changes that occur during pregnancy that are probably good in the short term for not rejecting the fetus and some Mm -hmm. of those issues. But again, that immunosuppression may become a liability um, over the course of a lifetime if you have a number of pregnancies and you've gone through periods of immunosuppression that could have allowed other issues tied to microbiome or infection to become more of a problem in a female patient. So not sure, but it's just another thought along those lines of of processes or signaling that are in some ways important or beneficial for the particular thing a human needs to go through, but might be um, problematic over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as
1: a species, our ability to create music, art, technology, um, all of this, um, has to happen despite the fact that evolutionarily we're programmed to, you know, eat food, uh, run away when the other person's bigger, uh, make a baby and go away. I mean, that's, that's what the brainstem is. What, the brainstem yes. is the oldest part yes. of the brain. I wrote in my book, Superbrain, about the fact that the brainstem, it, it, it's millions of years old, is the dominant part of the brain. And, and that's just, you know, fight or flight, uh, food, and sex, that's it. Yeah. And then and then you had the hippocampus, the limbic system came, you know, millions of years later, and it said, how about we remember some things rather than just rather than just go on instinct with no choice? Mm-hmm. Let's just see what makes us happy. And that memory will create desire. And let's just see what makes us upset and and, and causes us pain. And those memories will create fear. And now we're able to be conditioned with desire and fear based on memory of pleasure or pain. So that was the next evolution of the brain. And it worked hand in hand with the instinctive brain. But it was only 4 million years ago that this prefrontal cortex that gave us Da Vinci and Galileo and, and Mozart came around and, and, and said, hey, how about altruism, empathy, creativity, self-awareness, mindfulness, right? So this is all, as we, so I like to say that the instinctive brain was selfishness, and as, you, as the brain evolved, it went from selfishness to self-awareness that included awareness of those around you, altruism and empathy. So it's really cool to think to see how the how our human species is evolving exactly the way the brain is evolving. And in the meantime, all that baggage from the, the days when we were just instinctive beings, you know, including innate immune peptides like A-beta, the genetics from that travels with us. And that's what I have to do for a career every day is figure out how to <laughs> offset all these genes we discovered to cause Alzheimer's and come up with with, with ways to, 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 to stop Alzheimer's, preferably early before the brain starts to deteriorate.
0: Yes, yes, that's, that's really interesting to think about. Well, mm-hmm. I know now that um, we've mentioned infection as being one of the factors that can seed amyloid in a sense so that amyloid can respond in a protective fashion towards... Um, via your research, and we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, and people are getting regularly infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, does that worry you? And do you think that SARS-CoV-2? I don't see why it wouldn't be, to be honest, is another pathogen that could seed amyloid um, in the brain. And what are your thoughts on on that?
1: We have, so we have yet to come up with a microbe, virus, bacteria, or otherwise that doesn't seed A-beta into amyloid. But I would say that some seed it better than others. So if we compare it when Rob and I did those first experiments comparing amyloid beta protein to your uh, antimicrobial peptide LL37, A-beta was better against, for example, candida, you know, fungus than LL37 and better against penicillin, but LL37 was better against certain E. coli. So there are certain antimicrobial peptides among all of them in our body that hit certain microbes better than others. So we don't know what, we don't yet know what is the main antimicrobial peptide. Maybe, well, maybe we do know, and I don't know, but what is the main antimicrobial peptide that hits COVID? But the fact is that if COVID gets into the brain, it should be able to trigger amyloid production and tangles. And now we're seeing just recently the first cases of Postmortem brain samples of younger folks with COVID who did have amyloid entangles in the brain. So on one hand, I'm worried that since I've had COVID twice, uh, two different strains, um, I I, I, I worry a little bit that, you know, could COVID have triggered amyloid entangles in my brain that are now brewing and are going to propagate and start this cascade off? Um, I think back to the Spanish flu in 1918, and how if you look at the folks who were kids then or young adults then and fast forward to when they were 60 or 70 there was this huge epidemic of alzheimer's and parkinsons that correlates really well with the spanish flu which was a you know which which came which, which was another uh, epidemic uh, pandemic so i do have to worry about it where i worry less is that the data suggests our data too that covid has a um, a tough time surviving in the brain. So, the COVID, in order to COVID virus, in order to replicate, propagate, um, needs a certain receptor, the ACE two receptor that the spike protein binds to. You know, we make vaccinations against the spike protein to prevent it from binding that receptor because uh, that's how it propagates, right, and replicates. And in the brain, luckily, there's very little, if any, ACE two. So when the virus gets in. It's, it's, it's not going to have as uh, freewheeling a time as a herpes virus or a, CETER, or a CMV virus. Um, it's, it's going to die out, but on its way to not surviving in the brain, it could be triggering some amyloid and some tangles to get the process going. And at least in some people, postmortem brain showed that they had quite a bit. It's, it's not common, but there were some brains that had quite a bit of amyloid tangles. They have to wonder whether in those people they had more amyloid and tangles because of genetic reasons. In combination mm-hmm. with the amount of COVID that got in, but at least we can find some respite in the fact that COVID virus doesn't do well in the brain in terms of replication. Now, then you say, well, what about all the long-hauling, all the neuro-COVID long? Like, we actually, I, I as co-director of the McCann Center, we actually have um, what we call a COVID-19 uh, survivors clinic. We have, we have. You can come to us if you're having long-haul effects and brain fog isn't going away and you have neuro COVID effects. And, and we longitudinally track these folks and do neuropsychological assessments and take their blood. And, and we also are doing trials, where We're doing a trial on a supplement called nicotinamide riboside uh, using the version from Chromadex. And for transparency, I, I, I'm a consultant for Chromadex. Um, so I'm not, allowed to be, I'm not allowed to be involved in the trial. If you're a consultant for a company. Just want to disclose that. So, but um, the the center, other people in the center are doing a trial to see if true niagen or nicotinamide riboside helps alleviate some of these long-hauling neuroCOVID symptoms. And the trial is actually going quite well. And I think it's, you know, it's not over yet, but it's looking very promising. Um, so how does that, that
0: work? What's the mechanism of action?
1: Oh, so what nicotinamide riboside is the direct, is a precursor of NAD plus, and NAD plus turns into ATP, which as you know, is fuel for cells. Mm -hmm. So the more ATP a cell can make, the more resilient it is. So as COVID, so if COVID is trying to cause inflammation, for example, and what happens in brain fog with COVID is that most of the time you're getting inflammation in the blood vessels around the brain and around the meninges, and then that's causing inflammation around that area that can cause brain fog. Uh, but it's, it seems to mostly start outside the brain. But if you have higher ATP levels in your macrophages or your microglia in the brain or monocytes, they're less likely to enter into that, to, into that inflammatory pathway. They become more resilient. Um, like, like if you just take um, the, the equivalent of a macrophage in the body, that can become inflammatory because of COVID in the brain is microglia. And the microglia cells, if you up their ATP levels, you can coax them into being housekeepers and cleaning debris like when you sleep versus little killers that that take out your brain when there's an infection. Because remember, these little microglial cells, they've been programmed to do three things, right? They're housekeepers all day, they're cleaning up debris like amyloid while you sleep, but they're also sentinels. And as they're cleaning, if they eat a microbe, they're like, whoa, infection and they turn into a killer and say, wipe out this part of the brain, there's an infection, we can't get on this, we can't let it spread. But also if they eat parts of a dying of dead neurons, right, the microbe is called a PAMP and a dead neuron, piece of dead neuron debris is called a DAMP, disease associated. And that will also tell a microglial cell when it eats dead neurons, oh, it must be an infection. They don't, they don't know that we live this long and get Alzheimer's now and neurons die for other reasons. Like or, or drinking too much vodka, they don't, they, don't dis, they don't discriminate. They're programmed the same way as they were tens of thousands of years ago. I ate a dead neuron, must be an infection, wiped this part of the brain out. That's what inflammation is. Mm-hmm. So when you give them more ATP, you make them less likely to freak out and kill and more likely to stay housekeeping because the housekeeping at the end of the day takes more energy than just shooting out free radicals and killing everything in sight. It's, it's easier, it takes less energy to be a killer than it does to be a housekeeper.
0: That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So that's wow. what.
1: So nicotine, myribicide increases the ATP levels in your cells and makes them more resilient. And more. And it got it. So that's what. That's why we tried it.
0: That's great. Cool. Well, that's really good. I mean, so then I guess to summarize, it's not exciting that perhaps SARS-CoV-2 as a virus may be able to. Uh, catalyzed formation of amyloid. It seems likely since no other pathogen you've studied hasn't been able to do that, but you're not sure how often the virus gets into the brain. Personally, I've seen some mixed I results on into that. The brain. But, I, no, yeah. sorry.
1: I, I do think it, does, it gets yeah. into the brain. Yeah. Right, right through the nose.
0: Yes. Yeah, it it gets into
1: the brain, cribriform, right yeah. into the brain. Yeah. It just doesn't, it's just not able to replicate easier as easily. Because the receptor it needs to replicate is low in the brain.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so yeah, so then a little hope there we might not be able to flourish as much in the brain. And uh, although it's not probably amazing that people might get up to two, earth two uh, episodes of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID every year probably isn't going to help. Um, yeah,
1: well, but... I mean, you know, I mean, I, I had the first wave. Remember we were talking about yes. that, and 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 um, and then uh, then more recently got the. Uh, Omicron uh, version, which was a lot easier to deal with. That was (laughs) luckily a lot milder. But, you know, I got to accept the fact that COVID, you know, infected my blood vessels and maybe some got into the brain and maybe the little bit that got into the brain, even though it didn't replicate, most likely did trigger a little bit of amyloid and some tangles. And, you know, maybe I'm old enough that it's going to take long enough for that to all propagate. (laughs) Well,
0: you've probably been shielding your brain well with other, your other uh, techniques that you use. So there's hope there. But yeah, overall, it is definitely worrisome for me. We already had enough pathogens circulating before COVID started that seemed capable of driving chronic inflammatory processes. Um, so we didn't need another one. That's how I feel. So I'm not excited about that, but we'll see.
1: Well, I can tell you that yeah. we're focusing, we're still focusing mm-hmm. on herpes cool. um, virus just because it so potently drives amyloid. So even though we're not seeing, even though we couldn't replicate the Mount Sinai study seeing more herpes in the brain of Alzheimer's patients versus controls, we certainly see herpes virus in most brains yeah. uh, to some level. Um, but the other one we're looking at is cyto, uh, cytomegalovirus, CMV. Yeah. And I think CM, CMV might turn out to be even more interested in herpes actually. Interesting. For, for Alzheimer's, right.
0: Definitely interesting. And that's what the herpes virus is. is, it seems sometimes that it's not necessarily how much or the level of herpes virus that matters, but what it's doing or how the immune system is responding to it. Did you see that MS study where they were able to isolate the immunoglobulin from the cerebral spinal fluid of patients with multiple sclerosis and show that it was targeting one of the Epstein-Barr proteins and then cross-reacting with the glial protein? So I guess it's that mechanism of action of how the immune system is responding to something like a herpes virus that might make one person have the disease yeah. versus others as opposed to just amount, right? Yeah.
1: And there's also herpes encephalitis um, that can lead to auto antibodies against NMDA receptors. Yes. So you can actually have an autoimmune uh, exactly. disease that destroys your neurons because the antibodies against the herpes virus attack the NMDA receptors. So mm-hmm. that's a big problem is that when we fight these microbes those same antibodies might recognize host proteins and then cause autoimmune disease.
0: Yes, that molecular mimicry, I always talk about that, how sometimes the proteins created by a pathogen have a similar size and shape to a human protein or human Mm -hmm. structure, human receptor. So when the immune system targets the pathogen protein, there's collateral damage and it hits the host too. That to me seems like a really important mechanism to understand because it positions infection at the heart of autoimmune disease in a lot of cases, but it also does, create, show again how the immune response to a pathogen and what's going on on that side of it is very important to understand right. in addition to just what's there in terms of infection. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. In, the case of am- in the case of A-beta, I mean, you're starting the first pathology that, that triggers Alzheimer's disease, amyloid. Yep. And, it, and we know that it can take 30 years before the first amyloid can drive enough tangles and inflammation to get the symptoms of, of cognitive impairment and dementia. So yes. when I like to use this analogy of amyloids to match, and tangles of the brush fires or neuroinflammations, the big forest fire. When people, and people have asked me in talks, and they say, Well, what's striking the match? And I said, Well, mostly genetics, but it could be an infection. It could be a microbe. It could be a, 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 a piece of diesel fuel or air pollution. Anything that seeds, you know, these, 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 these antimicrobial peptides are so primitive. They're, the one thing they have in common is they're sticky. Yes. And when something binds to it and it sticks to it, it can cause a glob in the case. And if it's a glob of a beta, well, you got something that can cause tangles and inflammation. You have an amyloid plaque, you have an a beta oligomer. So that's how we think about
0: it. Yes. Well, it's great to check in with you again, Rudy, your lab just keeps going and going with this. I first, got in touch with you guys and actually knew Rob and you when in the earlier stages of research, when you were just working with the herpes virus infection. And from then you just continue to iterate this in so many ways with this model that basically starts to explain the Alzheimer's disease process. And I understand that there are many small factors that need to be figured out, but it is one of the things that offers me the most hope out there is that you really have at least characterized some of the basic trends that matter so much in this disease. And then there are flow on effects from that understanding to so many other conditions that also involve infectious agents and even a better understanding eventually probably of how the SARS-CoV-2 virus may be driving some cognitive or neuro type sequelae because there would be some parallels with what you're finding with other pathogens in that. So there's so much going on that can inform our understanding of what happens in the brains of patients um, with a number of conditions moving forward, so.
1: And and I'm very fortunate because, you know, Rob came to me as a postdoctoral fellow. I trained him, then he, you know, grew up and became assistant professor and head of his own lab in the unit, the genetics and agent research unit I direct. And then Rob brought in his own people as postdocs, like Will Limer, Deepak Kumar, Nanda Kumar. And now they're all instructors um, in my lab. And Rob trained them. And so they, it's beautiful because they can continue his work now under my supervision. And our goal is to make is to just, you know, show keep keep pounding this and show Rob was right. Yes. I mean, Rob single-handedly came up with this idea. And it's and it's still early days, because you know, paradigm shifts take a while, as Thomas Kuhn told us, mm-hmm. but the data are looking good. And we have a lot of people, I gotta tell you, I did an infection. Uh, a neuro neurology and infection workshop at the NIA recently where you had you know I was one of the only people talking about the antimicrobial protection hypothesis most of them were talking about different infections that might directly cause disease but of all the NIA workshops I've been involved with in over the last two years that one had the most participants and the most young participants So young scientists even when I teach courses and I I talk about the antimicrobial stuff like especially the younger scientists they really want to get into this because it's something new, you know, something yeah. off the beaten path, you know, a new paradigm shift. And Absolutely. so I think Rob's Rob's the father of this whole thing. And I think it's going to just keep blooming.
0: I agree. Yes. And it was an honor to have known Rob. So I agree. It's great, great to see you continue to work that work move that work forward. And also Will Emer um, is on our polybio where I work a scientific advisory board. So we have a lot mm-hmm. of influence from that where he's been very helpful. And we continue to, on our end, also just work on very similar infectious processes in patients with MECFS and long COVID as well. And we should keep touching base on that too. So yeah. Well,
1: Will, I don't know, if you know Will's, Will's getting married soon.
0: I know, um, I'm, are you going?
1: I, I, I'm away, unfortunately. No. I, I'm gonna be in Hawaii, but uh, he did show me his wedding suit. And I said, <laughs> and he said, his father said the same thing. I said, brown shoes? I mean, no, was it It was a was it brown suit, black shoes. Anyway, there was a mismatch with brown and black. And I, I, I think it was a black suit, brown shoes. And he said, man, my father said the same exact thing. And I'm like, well, we know, you know, we, all the guys know. <laughs> but he's going to do it anyway.
0: <laughs> well, I think my colleague mike van elziker and i are going to go so to his wedding so we'll see if we how he if he changes the outfit or not i have to say that these days black and brown is considered kind of cool so there's some changes I but
1: look it's up, look my
0: there you go black. it depends though yeah it depends how you put it on i i'll have to ask will about this though it does it does seem so like if an a hard
1: time about those brown shoes i'd really appreciate it.
0: <laughs> <to be> <laughs> okay sounds like a plan all right well rudy then Let's check back in, I don't know, um, coming up in the future and see what else you've uh, discovered and worked on. And oh, that sounds like a good plan.
1: Hey, one of the other things, you know, mm-hmm. Deepak Kruf, who was in Rob's lab now working with. Yeah. Um, he has a new paper also showing that the, the amyloid of diabetes, amyloid, yes. that forms in the pancreas, now he's shown is also an antimicrobial peptide. And it actually works together with A-beta in the brain to provide protection so the two of these work together that's a new study from him as well
0: yes i remember rob already talking about the different forms of amylin are also serving working as antimicrobial peptides which is really interesting that makes me additionally nervous with sars cov 2 because there you may not need the sars cov 2 virus to even get into the brain or central nervous system to be able Uh, to
1: that's the bigger worry and is it going to cause cardiac amyloidosis splenic amyloidosis and anywhere you have antimicrobial peptides to form amyloids, and they all can, you just need a good dose of, of, of long-standing virus to, to get it. So that's, I would worry more about that than in the brain, obviously. That's exactly, I
0: almost said that when you were talking about it before, I, I was gonna say, but aren't you studying different forms of amyloid, amylin, other forms that can be produced outside the brain in the pancreas yeah. and other organs, that becomes worrisome with SARS-CoV-2. So that's something that we have to keep our hand to, unfortunately, yeah, hate to end on that Absolutely. note, but but yes. Well, right. it's,
1: it's, you know, keep our eyes open. Yes, and hope, exactly. And hope for the best, so.
0: Okay. Sounds good, Rudy. All right. Well, take care. Thank you. Thanks.